Welcome to On Stage, Off Stage, the show for, of, and about theater and the good folks who toil away unceasingly to bring it to you. My name is George Sapio, and we are broadcasting on WRFI 88.1 FM in Ithaca, 91.9 FM Watkins Glen, and 89.9 FM in Odessa. Radio for the people and by the people, broadcasting independent and locally produced programs. Yeah, welcome back to another edition of On Stage, Off Stage. My name is George Sabio, and today we are talking with the renowned Alaskan playwright Alicia Jones. And she is, here's her bio, folks, so sit down, it's a good one. She's co-founder of Tosspot Productions, coming out of Anchorage, Alaska. Tosspot is an art house resident theater company located at Out North Art House in Anchorage, and they are committed to contemporary works of American theater, theater that offer equitable and challenging roles for men and women. Yay, more people doing good theater. With Tosspot and Out North, she recently directed Arthur Jolly's play, A Gulag Mouse, which was produced just this past March to excellent reviews. I saw them. I wish I could have seen the show. She's also working on her new full-length play called Come to Me, Leopards, and that's scheduled for a workshop production in October 2013 at Cyrano's Theater in Anchorage, Alaska. Her latest full-length play is Rush at Everlasting, and that received a reading at the Seattle Rep Theater in spring 2012. And get this, scheduled for a world premiere production at Perseverance Theater in Juneau, Alaska, January 2014, and a subsequent run at the Anchorage branch of Perseverance in February 2014. Not bad. Her past works include The Empirical Eskimo, which was selected as a finalist in the 2011 Samuel French Off-Off-Broadway Summer Play Festival in New York City. Her first full-length play, Sway Me Moon, was produced by Three Wise Moose, I love that name, at Out North Theater in February of 2008 in Anchorage, and again, at the 2008 Last Frontier Theater Conference in Valdez, Alaska. Jones is the recipient of a grant from the Alaska State Humanities Forum to write Make Good the Fires, celebration of 50 years of Alaska statehood. That was produced in Cyrano's in Anchorage in March 2009. Her short plays have been staged in Anchorage's Overnighter Theater, as well as staged and read at the Last Frontier Theater Conference in Valdez every year since, get this, 2006. And in addition to her theater work, because, you know, she can't sit down and not do nothing, Jones is also a published poet and author of one volume called The Bandsaw Riots, which won the 2001 Dorothy Brunsman Prize from Bear Star Press. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals and publications and were featured on The Writer's Almanac with Garrison Keillor. And if we're lucky and we don't make too much noise here, she may agree to even read one for us. So let's hope for that. Hey, Alicia, welcome to the show. Thanks, George. Nice to talk to you. You too. It's been a while. Yes, it has. Okay, so, Rush at Everlasting, two productions, one at Perseverance Juno and then bringing it to Anchorage. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, how'd that happen? Who's involved with this? Well, it's, um, you know, I took the play to the Last Frontier Theater Conference. For sure, written Was that 2009? I think I took it there. And... It might have been 2010. I lose track of those years. It was the last year I was there because I know I didn't get a chance to see it. Was it 2009? Yeah. Oh, please don't tell me it was that long ago. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I took it there, and um, I I know Boston Christopher, who is going to be my director down there. Right. He came and saw the play, and he'd been talking with Art Roach, who is the artistic director at Perseverance. 
and Art came and heard the play, too. And I remember when I walked in the room, I was, Boston was sitting in a chair, and there was an empty chair next to him, and I was sort of saving a chair for uh, my dad was also there. And this big tall guy comes in and sits down. I thought, well, who the hell is that? <laughs> Art, I found out later. <laughs> like, who's this guy sitting next to me? And then uh, I think at intermission, Boston told me, oh, yeah, that's Art. So then I had to sit there through the rest of the play with Art and Boston next to me. I was very nervous. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it for you. Yeah, yeah. But I had a, a tremendous reading there, and he, um, both of them really responded to the play. And I've been talking with Boston for, you know, as I've been writing it and working on it for a number of years, um, just the development of it. And he's helped me get a couple readings together to, you know, just kind of track its progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, you, you, you meet people, they get to see your work, and that's kind of how it happens. That is kind of how it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so the play itself, I mean, I just finished reading it a day or so ago. Um, and I went back and I read through most of it again because I found, I actually found the characters um, absolutely fascinating. You know, Ruby and Africa Jane, it's... Um, I, I loved both of them, and so let me ask you this: the play goes back and forth right, between uh, the turn of the century, 1890s to 1933, to all these different locations, and they tell stories. And you've got Butch Cassidy in there, or somebody you know who we think is Butch Cassidy. Right. Are any of these stories real? Are, are they linked to anything that actually did happen, or is this some kind of local legend thing? This, um, the only story that is real in there is the the character of who calls him the man who was known sometimes as Jim Ryan. Right. Every, everyone in the play actually has an alias. We don't know anybody's real name. But, right. Um, the man who's known as Jim Ryan is telling a story through some of the scenes. It's sort of the story stretched out over the whole play about his great grandfather as they were moving west with the the Mormon brigade. And the little boy, I don't know if you remember that, but a little boy gets lost in the woods. In the right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the only story that was real. The rest of them I all, I just, I made up. And um, just from, it took me years to write this play. So just from years of sitting, and whenever I'd have a quiet moment, one of them would start telling me a story. And, and that's sort of the, the point of the play is they, these characters want to have good stories to tell about themselves, exciting stories. Right. Um legendary stories because nobody wants to just die in oblivion and not have had anything fun to say or, or, or be known or remembered. Right, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've so, got... so that was the real story. That was just from research that I did. Right. Um, I started reading about Butch Cassidy one day. And, and it's Butch Cassidy's, I think it's his great-grandfather, but this story that I took about a little boy that gets lost. Mm-hmm. I, I did some research on Butch Cassidy a number of a number of years ago, um, and there's so much that's not known about him. Right. But there were so many legends about the man being here, being there. Um, was it ever documented that he was in Alaska? So he, uh, I read his sister's memoir of him. I think she just says, my brother was Butch Cassidy. I think that's the title or something. Mm-hmm, yeah. And there's two sentences about page 200 in the book that says, he went to Alaska for two years. He didn't like the cold. He came home. And I, at the time, I was already writing about him and had already made up this story about him. And I got to that line in the in the memoir, and it just almost blew my head off. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
So he was there, ah, according to her. Right. Um, and, and as I was writing it, it's, I just, I had to decide for myself. You know, there's, with Butch Cassidy, there's the whole, I guess, controversy, I don't know, that he didn't die in Bolivia. Okay. Yes, right. There were, and there were legends that he I, had returned to California and settled down. Right, 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 yeah, or the Pacific Northwest somewhere, you know. So I just decided that I didn't think that he had died. And the part of it is because I had done some other reading on something totally not related to this play, and it was a woman, I think she was in New Mexico, and at one point she's serving dinner to her ranch hands, and some of the you know various guys come into the, the room to start eating, and one of them is Butch Cassidy, and he's well into his 40s by then. Yeah. She knew him as a, as a boy, or not as a boy, excuse me, she knew him as a very young man, and she knew it was him. And he's sort of like the first Elvis that you know, he died, but everybody saw him everywhere. Uh-huh, sure. In committing crimes, all of these crimes would happen, and he was credited with them. And they do know that some of them he couldn't have committed because they're 300 miles away. Right. You know, one day after the other, and you just can't travel that far by horse. <laughs> so the legend grows itself. Yeah, so the legend grows. So it's, so I, I just love that aspect of it. We don't know for sure if he was alive or not, but I just decided that he was, and I could then write my story. I like the idea that he was. Pardon? I like the idea that he was. Yeah, I do too. And I, and it, and actually, it became necessary for me to believe, not even because of my story, but just necessary for me to believe that he didn't die. I, I just need that in my life to know that he. Escaped. Yeah. And as I started to write around it, and said, you know, like, what is this play that I'm going to write? I knew that he wasn't the main character because he's the historical figure that something's known about, and I created this character of Ruby Gold, or the woman that was known as Ruby Gold, mm -hmm. her real name. And I started to ask these questions about her, like, what is the worst woman that you can think of? You know, the, the, the worst woman ever. Is, what kind of woman would that be? And really? And I started to you know, look at her life and think, what, what has she done that she's so ashamed of? And yeah. is it so bad? And so that's how I entered into that story. And then the, the other, the third character in the play as Africa Jade. Process change, Africa Jade, yeah. My process changed a little bit. I used to, when I would sit down and start writing plays, it's because I had heard the language in my head. I'd heard them talking. And that doesn't happen at all anymore. Now it's that I see characters in my head, and I see them from a very long way off. And as I start to get closer to them, then I can see their body language. And it's not till I've had them in my head for months and months that I actually start to hear something. And so this started to happen with Africa Day that I would just see Ruby in her room, like way far away, like I was mm -hmm. a neighbor looking through the window. And then I realized one day, oh my God, there's a woman with her, another woman. Who is that? What is she doing? And um, and I realized that it was a black woman. And I, you know, it's 1930, and I thought, oh, is it the maid? And I thought, I'm not. I don't want to write another. Uh, here's a black maid role. For right. Sure. Fantastic black actress. Yeah. Well, she says several times in the thing, I'm not your maid. Yeah, I'm not your maid. She might have been her maid, or that's why she got well, her. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. but she's not her maid. She's her partner, and they're bank robbers. And I just decided one day, you know what? They're bank robbers because they want to tell that story about themselves so bad. Yeah. Well, I, you've got the whole Bonnie and Clyde thing going on there, and sure, of course they want to be, you know, just famous and yeah, worthy. It's have a legend. Right. Right. Yeah. So okay. You build your characters from the physicality out. Is that typical for you? 
Do you, I mean, do you have to yeah. see them, see how they move, look at the... Yeah, I, I really do have to see how they move. And um, it, and it used to be, I, it, it was around, it was about hearing them first. Right. And that, um, that's just changed for me. And I think it's changed because I, I've tried to, as an artist, um, you know, I'm a writer, so everything is based on words and based on words on a page, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so I've been really trying to lift myself away from that and just hear language and hear language as a human being uses it walking through time and space, which I think helps me with my writing quite a bit, for, for stage anyway. Um, right. But then after a while, it's not even that. It's just that I think humans can tell or do tell an incredible story before they ever open their mouth. You can tell so much about a person. You know, if their back hurts, why does their back hurt? Oh, they probably work too long or, you know. Yeah. Like that, or if they're standing next to a person, you know what? That guy right there standing next to that woman, he's in love with her, but she doesn't know it, or she doesn't care. <laughs> you, know, you can just tell things like that. And I can get in, and it's a great way to find stuff out about my characters before they know I'm looking at them. Well, it's instinct. You you, yeah. Right? You, you know that sometimes they just shut up and they won't tell you things. Do you ever make decisions on people before you meet them just by looking at them and observing them? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's Not it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you probably are right more often than you think. Yeah. yeah. And it's instinct counts for a lot, and even though you can't quantify it, mm-hmm. there's that feeling. Yeah. There's you know, it's there's something about person X that's off-putting or endearing or you know the the set of the eyes and the way they smiled. I got to go meet this person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And it's it's. I mean, it's, they become like the text and that you're reading, and then it's, it's it's so gratifying when you've written this character and you've seen them so clearly and how they're moving, and when you give it to an actor and the actor starts doing the same thing and you haven't told them, but it's there right. somehow in the character that they've been given on the page. That's when I'm like, oh, okay, I think I've got a good process here. It's I think under the right circumstances, you can absolutely embed your own instincts and impressions into a script and have it carry over to mm-hmm. an actor that is receptive to that sort of thing. Right. That is instinctual as it is. You know, um, it, it's amazing once once you you know, as a scriptwriter myself, it's, there have been instances where I've given my script over to somebody and. All of a sudden, I'm hearing everything that I thought I heard in my head coming out of this person's mouth. Yeah. And <laughs> it is scary because they, they see you looking at them and they go, what am I doing wrong? It's like, no, don't stop. Don't stop. Yeah. 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 So like, what? How, how, did, how did you know that? Well, because you wrote it. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was obvious. Yeah. What made you decide to write play scripts? I started as a poet. Um, back in the 90s and that's what I, I got a degree in poetry and um, but, you know, I loved it and I still do love writing poetry but something started to change I think I've always been a playwright I think from the time I was a little girl I was a playwright I'm sorry to but hear that something started to change in the, the poetry writing I started to write in persona um, all the time and, and these huge long like five page long persona poems that were telling a story and and then pretty soon the poems got to where they, they weren't even poems anymore. They, there was movement in them. I was worried about what the character was dressing like. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think I went a whole year before I 
really even wrote a poem that started with I, and the I referred to me. It was always some persona that I had created. And so I just thought, you know what? I might be a playwright. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. And I wrote my first play, and it was just like, oh my God, I love this. It makes so much sense, and it was so freeing. And I have always clicked into how people talk. I just, I love to listen to people talk, the words they use, the way they string their sentences together. And so, as a playwright, I start doing that. I, I get to eavesdrop on people or select a voice or something, and it's still like poetry to me. Do you labor over your word choices? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, me too. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've found that even a syllable can turn an entire speech from one thing into something completely different. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and it's funny because now the actors that I get to work with up here, they all know that I started as a poet. And so I have always had this, um, I, I guess it's just this great fortune of every actor that I get to work with knows that I have picked the word the over the word uh, you know, it's that right. important sometimes. Right. And so they, they're very, very careful with my scripts all the time and, and usually are letter perfect when they come off stage. That's great. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, word, cho word choices are just absolutely phenomenal things because it's amazing to just be able to belabor them and decide. Um, you recently went broke off from writing. Well, not not broke off from writing. Let me rephrase this so I don't sound like an idiot. Sometimes I do, yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you just directed your first play, correct? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Arthur Jolly's A Gulag Mouse. Excellent reviews, by the way, in case I didn't mention that. Um, okay, besides the I really want to direct kind of thing. Um, no, I didn't really want to direct kind of thing. No? <laughs> You got what? You got dragged and 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 blackmailed into directing. Yes. I okay. Tell me. Tell me. We we started our our theater company, and so I was going to be one of the producers, and I started that with Jill Sauerwein. Mm-hmm. We production, so we we're partners in it, and we had this play from Arthur Jolly after the Last Frontier Theater Conference. That's where we met him, and we came back to Anchorage, and we had a reading at my kitchen table here, and. But once I, the first time I read the play, I was just struck by it, and I, I can't stop seeing the play in my head. I, right. I dream about it all the time. The characters fascinate me. So we had the reading, and we were talking about, you know, who are we going to find to direct this? And all of the women, it's five women and one guy, and they all looked at me and they said, we thought you were directing it. That's why we're here. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm just producing it. And I just, you know, I, I serve the, the spaghetti and stuff and the scones. For this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the caterer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they were, no, 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 we thought it was you, we thought it was you. And so they, that evening, they just were, no, you have to direct this, you have to direct this. And, and I kept telling them, no, 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 because I just did not think I could do it justice at all. And then they started a, a texting campaign and an emailing campaign. Like, ah. directing, right? And so it, this went on for a few days and finally I said, okay, I'm directing. So it's your fault and you don't get to say anything now. <laughs> so, so I gave you a fair warning. We came the cast and, and we sort of formed a little uh, loose company up here of who our actors are and you know, we have more projects coming up. But but once I agreed, I was very nervous. Cause, you know, I, I sure, yeah. yeah, but yeah. Did you love it though? I, would just, I, I did. I loved this play and I loved this cast. I don't know. I don't think every director's cut out for every play, so I, I'm not falling into that trap. Totally, no, totally agree with you on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, but it just, it all came together here, and it, and what I would always go back to, every time I would get nervous, 
I would just go back to the play and close my eyes, and I could see it so strongly. I could see it stronger than I can see some of my own work, you know, which mm-hmm. was really telling to me. And the production that we ended up doing, I had uh, uh, Carrie on a gala, who I, you might have met down there, did the set. Carrie on a gala. Yeah, it, she's a, an incredible theater artist, and it looks exactly like it looked in my head. The costumes by Scotty Heverling looked exactly like they looked in my head. So it just all started to come together, and we were all all so committed and you know, working for this common thing. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's it sounds like a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. Has this directing experience changed the way you write? I think it has actually, and I don't I don't know if it's I know I know now what um, as a director I was looking for in the script and what would save me in the script. Like I don't know what to do with this scene. Oh, but here's this playwright's done this, so here we go. I've got this clear through line. So I'm really trying to look at my scripts that way and, and you know, so I can deliver a really a solid script to a director that can then put it on stage. So in those terms, it's changing it a little bit. Right, because really I think just this last month is, after working with these women, they were so comfortable in the roles and in the, it's the situation inside of a gulag prison. And they're very, it's very claustrophobic. Um, there was a lot of silence on stage, a lot of silence, and they were so comfortable with it. And I tend to write really wordy, and I, maybe I'm uncomfortable with silences, I don't know. So that's changed me a lot, just seeing these actors be able to hold the stage with no words. I think that now I'm, I'm going back, and it's like, okay, cut this by 50%, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't need all this. <laughs> Which I just tend to be wordy anyway. I think it's, I, just, I love language, I guess. Somebody told me early on that if you're going to be a good playwright, you need to be a good or a decent or have experience doing just about everything else there is with theater, especially directing, especially you know, stage managing, especially all that other sort of you know stuff that other people do. Right. So that you can have a much better idea of what it is that you are doing when you're crafting your play. Um, and I've found it helps a lot. You're an actor, too, aren't you, George? Uh, when I'm conned into it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's I haven't done that, and I don't look to do that. I don't. I really, really do not want to be on the stage at all. I don't understand how they are able to do what they do. So just, it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, that me too. And and I don't think I'd just do a service to the playwright. But what I love about you might be surprised. That, you know, helping with costumes, helping with props. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's work, and it's your. It's something to do with your hands too. Mm-hmm. And half the time when I'm off in my office writing the play, it's, I know that I don't have the fun part. You know, <laughs> 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 so sweeping the stage is a lot more fun than writing it. Yeah, but without play, you, so. the rest of them don't have anything to do. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, Go back. <laughs> okay, we're almost uh, out of time here, but I do want to cover. I do want to get to. Uh, Alicia, as a poet, um, you published a book, Bandsaw Riots. Mm-hmm. Uh, where's the title come from? The title comes from one of the poems in the book, and it's, um, it's describing my dad, who is a butcher. And that's how we moved to Alaska, was my parents opened a meat shop up here and, and sold to the pipeline camps. And so my dad was the butcher, and my mom was the rapper, and the book 
housekeeper, and now my brother is now the butcher in the same business, and now I am the wrapper and meat and uh, bookkeeper. I don't have to wrap so much anymore. We have a machine that does it, but the title describes, or the yeah, the title comes from a, just watching my dad stand at the saw all day. Yeah, and he's you know dreaming his dreams while the bandsaw riots in his ear, like out of the wasp gone berserk in a jar. I think is, is the, the image I used. Would you uh, honor us by reading one of your poems for us? I sure would. That'd be great. I have one here. You asked me to pick a little shorter one. And this is, I I don't remember when I wrote this, but something about, it was back when Palin was the vice presidential candidate, and they kept throwing around that term of preconditions. There should be preconditions anytime you talk to whoever, Mm -hmm. the guy in Iran or something. And... um, Whatever my feelings were about that, <laughs> that, that certain election and that person, but uh, so That's I, a different I started show. thinking of that word preconditions and this idea of that we have an enemy or, or everyone can have an enemy and how do you approach that enemy? How do you talk to them? So that's why I wrote this, and it's called Preconditions with My Enemy. At our reconciliation, there should be chairs so we both can sit. There should be a round table between us so we can't forget. We are the lesser moons in orbit around a strange, uninhabited accord. I agree if you agree. I will place my hands if you will place your hands empty and open on the table, fingers outspread into the twenty tribes of our autochthonous face. Prayer has no precondition. We should keep moderate tongues. We both have reason to be here. Who am I if I don't hate you? That's what I've come to find out. I've threatened to burn the air around you, to crack open your sky, shake lightning, clack like a necklace of white bones. You've sworn to ignite the black lamp in the toad's mouth, to let the oily flame spit and flare a venom into my open eyes. You withdraw, if I withdraw. Stone stacked on stone, we've built the campus of our arguments to outlast the human soul. We survive if we both survive. Is it that simple? Tell me why you hate me. That's lovely. Thank you. That's that's really nice. Thank you so much. Uh, our time is pretty much up here, and I want to thank you so much, Alicia Jones, for being our guest today. And lovely to talk. It was great. And good luck with writing the new play. Looking forward to seeing it, reading it, having it go to Broadway, and take it by storm. <laughs> That'd be my date. <laughs> Excellent. That's, well, we, we might have a problem with your spouse and my spouse, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> they can come, too. Okay, cool. They can be each other's date. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, and we'll be thank talking you. to you again soon. All righty.